0: This is EntreEd Talk, the podcast for entrepreneurial educators by entrepreneurial educators. We are your hosts, Toy Hirschman and Amber Ravenscroft.
1: This podcast is created by the National Consortium for Entrepreneurship Education, or EntreEd for
0: short. Welcome everybody to the EntreEd Talk podcast. We are so excited to have with us today, Dr. Andy Gold. Andy is a full-time business faculty member at Hillsborough Community College and teaches in the graduate school at the University of Tampa and the University of South Florida. Andy is co-founder of the INLAB at Hillsborough Community College, an interdisciplinary institute for innovation. Andy co-founded Operation Startup in 2016, an entrepreneurship center in Tampa that serves Hillsborough Community College students, military veterans, social entrepreneurs, and early stage everyday entrepreneurs. He recently co-authored a chapter for the community colleges as incubators of innovation book that focuses on an urgent need for community colleges to prioritize entrepreneurship education. Andy co-founded E2 Venture, a consulting business that provides entrepreneurial mindset training services to organizations, educators, and at-risk youth. Prior to all of this, Andy um, has a 12-year career in finance working on Wall Street, where he and a partner raised $52 million in capital to start up a hedge fund business. And in 1994, he founded TerraPath, a social entrepreneurship venture delivering IT and consulting services to nonprofits. Like so many of our amazing guests, Andy is a lifelong entrepreneur, having started multiple businesses over the past 28 years. Boy, is that a lot and so much for us to dig into today. So welcome, (laughs) Andy. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to participate.
0: Awesome, awesome. We are so we are so glad to have you. So to kick it all off, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own entrepreneurial journey? And you know, did you always want to be an educator? You know, how did you how did that how did that happen from from Wall Street and from your outside of education, entrepreneurship, to Oh, to
2: gosh. Out. As uh, some musician once said, that's a long and winding road. that's <laughs> But um, I will say that I uh, did not uh, ever envision myself as being an educator and I'm relatively new to teaching uh, maybe over the past uh, eight or nine years or so. Um, so my journey um, really started uh, way back in high school, and I won't bore you with stories there, but I had a teacher, an English teacher there who really inspired me to pursue um, my uh, initial career in finance, which is what I ended up doing. It was over that fourteen um, year period or twelve to fourteen year period where I just really had like my soul like ripped out of my body over that period of time. I I loved it for a while, but then felt kind of like an empty sense of purpose. Um, So my first venture was the hedge fund you mentioned. You know, it was a heavy lift for us. You know, we'd never raised capital before. That was a whole new experience. But that was sort of like the beginning of the end of my career on Wall Street. Um, So we shut down that particular hedge fund. um, I got my money out of it and began to work with a friend of mine, this guy, David, that owned a small IT consulting business. So one day he, and I loved it, you know, it was really cool. It was when IT was just coming on back in the 1990s. And um, he sent me one day to a client of his, St. Malachy's Church, an organization in there called Encore Community Services, um, a nonprofit serving uh, homeless seniors. And um, I'd never really done work with nuns. I happen to be Jewish, which has little to do with the story, except for the fact that I just never had any interaction with nuns at all. So I was like, I remember mentally preparing myself to go down there and thinking, gosh, you know, what are these women going to be dressed as, you know, who run this organization? They're all nuns. And, you know, I'm so old. I recall a TV show that used to be on called The Flying Nun. It was with an actress by the name of Sally Fields. And she could fly, you know, but I didn't think nuns flew, but I thought, well, gosh, they might be dressed in that like outfit, you know, the habit that they wear. So I was like preparing myself to like be cool with that. Like, oh, that's normal and everything. So I go down there and I'm greeted by sister Elizabeth and sister Lillian. And they were so inspirational they weren't dressed like that. They were these really passionate business women doing really important work. And I was there for about two and a half days. And every time I would pass them, they would like bless me and stuff. I thought, gosh, how, how cool is this? You know, I have this really good job where I'm getting blessed by nuns. So I get back to Dave's office and he says, okay, Andy, you have to invoice um, their organization now for your time. And I I felt really guilty, you know, and I was like, well, Dave, have you been there lately and blah, blah, blah. And he starts lecturing me about business. And, you know, if you don't get, if we don't bill them, you can't get paid and this and that. I said, well, just don't pay me for the last two and a half days. And he didn't like that. So I, I got into a bit of an argument with him. I ended up invoicing them and it really bothered me. And I thought to myself, you know, how many, how many small nonprofits are there out there that can't afford good quality IT services because they have to allocate their resources toward their constituents. Um, And it turns out there's a lot of them. There's a lot of small nonprofits that um, really can't afford uh, various services. Um, So I thought to myself, how could I start a for-profit business that would allow me to pay my mortgage and uh, pay for food and electricity and save money for my kids' uh, college education because they were little at that time but then at the same time be able to provide services for free to small kind of like single shingle executive director led um, nonprofits. So I, you know, when I think back on that time, I was really not very smart and I, it took me like nine months to come up with a business model. And I realized I could just do what Dave was doing, my friend Dave, I could start my own IT consulting business and have paying customers like small accounting firms and law firms and so on. And then I could do whatever I want with the profits. You know, I could buy another company. I could pay myself a bonus. I could pay other people to go deliver services for free. And that's what I chose to do. So we launched that company out of my house in 1994. It took um, about three years for us to get to the point where we had enough profit to begin to go down that road and today the company um, provides free services to over 70 nonprofits in New York City, all funded through paying customers. So that's an example of a great success that I've had and a really a fulfilling um, series of decades working with amazing people. I think it's important with things like this to also mention that while I've had some successes and you did an eloquent job going over my bio and everything, um, I've had my fair share of failures, you know, and I, I think that one of the things I've learned about failing in business is a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, that's the, that's how you learn, you know, through failing." And and I'm here to say to you, you know, though I, I've failed quite a bit, and I could have done without the lessons learned from a lot of those failures. They were really painful failures, um, but I think that's where education really can come into play, and. I didn't really realize that until um, back in, I want to think, I think it was 2008, a friend of mine teaches at Columbia University and said, hey, would you come in and talk about social entrepreneurship, kind of like what you do with your company? So I went to his graduate class and there were maybe like 50 students in there and, you know, telling all my silly stories and they're laughing, maybe out of politeness, who knows, But I thought, wow, you know, they seem really interested in these life experiences that I've had as a entrepreneur. Um, Maybe I could teach and give that a go as well. So I started to adjunct at a few schools. One thing led to another. An opportunity came up at Hillsborough Community College in Tampa to um, become a faculty member, but more importantly, to build an entrepreneurship program from the ground up. And that's um, what I decided to do. So I still have my company up in New York. I've started a few other companies down here in Tampa. Um, and I really have enjoyed, you know, all that, you know, that that world has brought to me, both in, in terms of contribution back to society, but also fulfillment and feeling like every day I'm really doing something that's worthwhile.
1: So I think there are a couple of points that I want to like talk about. First is that an English teacher drove to you to finance, which yeah. is just so crazy for me to think about like how did so like how did that come about like was she Okay. Well yeah. this
2: story this story it's a story wrapped in serendipity which is something I'm really passionate about um sort of like these random unforeseen things that happen and take you you know down a certain path so um in new york i grew up in new york city and i'm a product of public education um so when it was time for me to go to high school <clears throat> The high school that I was zoned for in my neighborhood uh was a high school called Brandeis High School and it was a really bad high school on a lot of levels and my parents were worried about me going there Um, my sisters had gone to these public schools uh, for music and art you know they one played the flute um, and the other dance so they were able to get into those schools I didn't do either of those although I did play drums I was a drummer I still am I played the drums But they were like, look, Andy, we can't afford private schools, so you're going to have to take this test um, to try to get into one of these three public schools in New York City, which are, even today, like nationally recognized public high schools. One is called Stuyvesant High School, which is in Manhattan. The second one is called Bronx Science. So, Amber, do you want to guess where that school is located?
1: It might be in the Bronx.
2: You got it. Nailed it. Very good. Um, toy, you get the next one. The third one is Brooklyn Tech High School. Where do you think that one is, Toy?
0: Definitely Manhattan. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we eliminated Bronx science, my friends and I, right out of the gate uh, for a stupid reason. Um, we are lifelong New York Mets baseball fans. and <laughs> the, um, the Yankees, of course, are from the Bronx, and we couldn't bear spending four years of our lives listening to Yankees fans telling us how great the Yankees are and how bad the Mets are. Even though that's true, we didn't want to subject ourselves to it. So we literally eliminated Bronx. It was a really bad, it's a really good high school, you know, but we, <laughs> we were young. Yes, you know, so that's kind of how we thought. So we were kind of settling in on, um, on Stuyvesant. You know, it was in Manhattan. We knew where it was. That's where I was living. And then all of a sudden, this movie comes out. And the movie is a movie called Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta, and we go to it, and we see all this amazing, cool stuff going on in Brooklyn, like these clubs and stuff happening. (laughs) I'd never really been to Brooklyn much, you know, so we decide to go to Brooklyn Tech because of that movie, and I I couldn't tell my parents that. I remember, you know, but Brooklyn Tech was known for its engineering program, so I remember going home to tell my parents, oh, you know, I've, I've really decided I want to go to Brooklyn Tech because I want to be an engineer. And they thought, oh, that's great, Andy. Good pick. You know, it's a good career. So it was only like years later, of course, that I told them the truth that it was because of John Travolta and <laughs> that I went there. There she goes, toy. Um, so I go there and my freshman year, the first day of school, Last period is English class with this guy, Mr. Edward. And, um, you know, I'm kind of a little bit nervous. Brooklyn Tech's a huge high school. There's like 8,000 students there. My graduating class was about 2,500 kids. Um, But anyways, we go into his room, and he's sitting at this wooden desk with all these pieces of paper on it and rulers and pencils. And he's doing all this stuff, ignoring all of us as we're filing in to sit down at our desks. And then the bell goes off, and he, he kind of looks up at us from where he's sitting, and he, like, this sad look comes over his face, like, oh, you know, another year of having to teach, like, literature to these kids. You know, I could tell it was just, like, going to be a miserable year. And um, my intuition was right. You know, I mean, as it turned out, Mr. Edwards was by far the worst English teacher I ever had, ever. I mean, ever. I, I didn't learn anything from that man about English. Um, But, everything I didn't learn about English from Mr. Edwards, I learned almost everything I know today about finance and economics. And as it turned out, all that stuff he would do before and after class at his desk, I finally go up to him about two weeks into the year, and I'm curious, like, what he's doing, because he seems so interested in that and so disinterested in teaching. So, he says, sit down, Andy, I want to show you what I do. He knew my name, which caught me by surprise. And he said, sit down, I want to show you what I do. I trade stocks and he's showing me charts of different stock prices and he's drawing trend lines. And I I didn't understand anything he was telling me, but it it was like a whole new man, you know, like this person that was so animated by that and so dispassionate about his actual profession, which was to teach. So about a week later, it's a Friday and he calls me in and he says, "Um, Andy, I want to show you something. So he, he shows me this chart of a stock that had been going from $10 to $30 to $10 to $30 for like eight years. And it finally had gotten above $30. And he's calling that a resistance level and it's breaking out. And he goes, this is going to go up a lot. I just want to show you, you know, how I make my decisions. So I was curious. I said, well, what's the name of the company? So he said, oh, it's a company called Resorts International. And I said, well, what do they do? And he said, well, they don't do much yet, but these were his exact um, words. I'll never forget it because it like changed my life. He said, "Uh, here's the deal, Andy. He said in about a month in the state of New Jersey, they're going to be voting on whether or not to legalize gambling in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And if they vote yes, Um, Resorts International has the rights to build the first casino hotel in Atlantic City. And if they vote yes, I think, man, that stock's going to go up a lot. So I went home. I was so excited. Um, I had been bar mitzvahed, you know, and I had like $900 in a savings account from gifts my parents, friends had given me for my bar mitzvah. And I, I told my dad about Mr. Edwards and he was like so excited. And I'm like, dad, I want to take my bar mitzvah money and go buy Resorts International. So we go, I give it to my dad. This is like before, you know, you could uh, uh, use uh, banking online. You know, you had to like physically work, walk into these buildings that used to be called bank branches and fill out these pieces of paper called withdrawal slips and go to a teller. They used to have these people that actually worked in branches and stuff. So <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I'm they're, feeling they're, some
1: they're, millennial shaming. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> So I give him my money. He comes back. He's like, Andy, you are the proud owner of 32 shares of Resorts International stock. He had bought it at like a little over $30 a share. So I go in the next day to tell Mr. Edwards. And Mr. Edwards is like, Oh my God, Andy, I didn't mean for you to take your bar mitzvah money. And do you understand this could go down? I could be wrong. He felt guilty. He was just trying to teach me. I said, No, I totally get it, Mr. Edwards. I know there's risk here, but I'm in. I think this is a good opportunity. So, of course, gambling does get legalized in New Jersey, and the stock goes from $31 a share in November uh, up to $170 a share in January. So it goes up by 140 points in two and a half months. And I had just made, as a 15-year-old, a little over $3,500, which was a humongous amount of money to me at that time. Um, but then a really weird thing happened. I sold it, you know, because it had gone up so much. And I, I felt so good. And my dad couldn't believe it, you know, that I that his son had done the one thing he'd been trying to do his whole life is, like, pick one of these winners in two and a half months. So I sell it, and I felt so good. But then um, from January of that year until June, the stock went from $160 a share up to $380 a share. And I was like, oh, I won't use a bad word on your podcast. But I used a bad word and it starts with F. And I was like, oh, F, you know. <laughs> I felt like this greed switch went off in my head. And all of a sudden, I was no longer happy with having just made 3500 bucks. I was like miserable over this money I could have made. I was such a greedy little kid, you know. And I, I talked to Mr. Edwards about it. He was like my advisor, you know my life advisor at that point point. Um, and he said well look Andy that you got to be happy with what you made that's really unusual but when you get to college he said you really shouldn't study finance if you want to have a career on Wall Street in my opinion he says to me I think you should study psychology and economics because if you don't understand what makes people tick you'll never have a successful career on Wall Street so I did exactly that I went to college I studied, I dual majored in psychology and economics, which today is, it's called like behavioral economics that didn't exist back then. I was a trailblazer even back then. I was like (laughs) studying things that people didn't even know existed. So that led to my career on Wall Street and it's all because of John Travolta. And if I ever meet him, I'm going to share that story with him because I think it's important to know that honestly, Had that movie not come out, I would have gone to Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. And it's not to say I wouldn't have met somebody like Mr. Edwards at Stuyvesant, but probably not. The probabilities were probably against that. Um, So it was really a random set of circumstances that took me that way.
0: And I'm really interested. It's kind of a a crossover because we wanted to mention the chapter that you co-wrote in the Nacy book. Uh Um, But reading over that chapter, you kind of mentioned something about like your background and and getting into teaching. And in the book, you talk about how there's sort of a debate on whether entrepreneurship can be taught or not taught. And, you know, and you do a lot with the mindset stuff as well. So I'm interested to get your take on how you're doing it, how Hillsborough is doing it differently, teaching entrepreneurship, that is the than most colleges. Um, you go into the culture a little bit too and that, that's a fascinating thing for us because we find that if the culture is not there, even if a college wants to be, says, oh, we're innovative, we're doing business plans, you know, yeah. um, that that's not really what's happening. So I just like to get your take on how, how you do it differently and to bring entrepreneurship into the community college and into University of South Florida and, and into uh, the University of Tampa.
2: OK, well, I mean, I'll just start by saying entrepreneurship can absolutely be taught, at least in my opinion, it can be taught.
1: Ours, too. Yeah. I appreciate that like strong thesis at the front end. Thank you. <laughs>
2: But it's like anything, you know, you can teach somebody how to become a scientist, but it doesn't guarantee they become Albert Einstein, you know. So you can learn about entrepreneurship and, and how to be an entrepreneur, but it doesn't mean that there's an automatic pathway to success. Um, and I think that that's an important distinction. I, we look at entrepreneurship through, a, I think, a slightly different lens. We look at it as a set of competencies um, skills that people can develop and cultivate that in many instances can lead to small business formation, but in other cases can lead to a much greater added value in the workplace as an employee where you bring these skills that employers desire and um, those skills immediately add something to that organization. So we kind of look at it as a process of developing those skill sets um, and if it just so happens you start a business, which many of our students do, great, you know, that's an awesome thing. Um, but I, I think the most important thing that we do is we have a ha- an all hands on deck approach to how we go about um, formulating our program. Uh, to begin with, uh, most of the stuff we do is evidence-based. So we will do a lot of research Um, at the beginning uh, to find out if kind of like our assumptions are actually so in the eyes of others. Um, And once we kind of get through all of that stuff, we're able to let the information that we capture inform our decision-making a little bit better. It doesn't drive our decision-making in the end, because sometimes, you know, when you talk to people, like they don't really know what they want, so they may not express it. So you have to kind of innovate on their behalf sometimes and test things to a degree. But our program, what sets it apart is, it is extraordinarily experiential. Um, All of the students that come through our program are required to work on an actual business. We do uh, no business planning at all in our curriculum. It's all business modeling. Um, It's all based on design thinking, business modeling, effectuation, and really uh, learning by doing is really the mantra that we have. So you have to have an action orientation. So if you're not, if you're not like the first day of class, like if you can't pitch an idea, it doesn't have to be a, a good pitch, but it has to be something, um, you're strongly encouraged to drop out of the program. Um, our program at HCC, just to give you some context, um, on the academic side, we have sort of like a step program where you can come into our program for one semester and complete a 12 credit college certificate in entrepreneurship. It's four classes and you're done in 15 weeks. The goal of that certificate is to accelerate people through the business modeling process and the outcome being you either launch a company for real and you're in business in 15 weeks um, or you kill the idea because it's absolutely horrible, which is what happens to most of our students. and they're sad for a little while, but they learn you know, so much through that process. And I think it gets them you know, moving on to, to new ideas as they, they move forward with their careers. That certificate program step ladders into a 25 credit certificate, which is a two semester program. And then those two certificates step ladder into both an AA and an AS degree in entrepreneurship, both of which we have here at Hillsborough Community College. So. It's sort of like a step process that meets a lot of different need states. So in our one semester certificate program, for example, we get people in there who have master's degrees. Um, we get people in there who are traditional 18 to 24 year olds just going to college. We get people who've never been to college and have been working for the man, so to speak, for like, you know, 16 years and hate it and they want to finally take action on an idea. So it makes for like this really organic um, cohort and environment for people to share with one another, their life experiences, and also support one another. And it's an awesome um, process. Now, supporting the college credit structure is a whole bunch of co-curricular programming that we actually put in place before we launched the college credit program. So The co-curricular stuff is really um, bringing in guest speakers, a speaker series, pitch events, we do a lot of annual events as well. Um, And we opened up a center, which Toy mentioned at the um, beginning, um, called Operation Startup back in 2016, which is not on our campus, it's actually in a neighborhood in Tampa, which we thought was kind of important because we wanted to also pull people in that might be interested in entrepreneurship education, And sometimes they don't go to a campus to find out that information. They find out about it through other means. So we get a lot of people into our center in Tampa, and um, we serve them through co-working space, um, about 30 workshops a month that are free, um, and advisory and mentoring services that we offer directly to them. Um, more recently, we got, uh, we were fortunate enough to get a grant uh, through a NACI partner, the Everyday Entrepreneur Venture Fund. We were one of four colleges to be awarded $250,000 in seed capital to fund businesses. Then we structured it where you qualify to apply for funding after you complete one of our college credit programs. So you can come into the 12 credit certificate and boom, you qualify to apply for up to $100,000 in funding. That was a matching gift. So on our end, um, we so far have matched it. The fund is now in excess of $500,000 and it's growing. So we're really excited about that because it, it allows us to differentiate ourselves from universities, from other community colleges. Like if you're really serious about starting a business and you come into our program not only do you learn a lot, but you then have access to a pool of capital that you otherwise would never have access to. So that's just a couple of the things that we do that I think are a little bit different. Um,
1: I just want to point out how humble you just were. (laughs) That's just a couple of the things that we do as
0: as we've been like in awe with our mouths open. (laughs) I think I might be drooling on myself. Um. An aside is an, is a science associates of science. How did you get that for entrepreneurship? That's kind of different, isn't it?
2: Well, AS. we we kind of marketed it as a 21st century business administration degree. We we kind of began to rain on business administration degrees as being kind of a bit old school and you know a little bit out of date with you know what employers are looking for. So I started to do some research with a colleague of mine at the University of Tampa on the skills gap Um, and we found out some interesting things. I mean there's a lot of data out there as you know about kind of like what skills employers value the most and there's all these different research studies that you can look at Um, but what isn't out there is whether or not there's not a lot of literature out there on whether or not students, faculty, and administrators at colleges think that their students are learning the right skills. So We embarked upon some research, um, which we'll publish probably next year, um, sometime in like mid-January. We spoke to hundreds of employers. Um, We spoke to over a thousand students and administrators, and this is what we discovered. We discovered that a little over 90% of the employers we spoke with do not believe that recent college graduates possess the requisite skills that they're looking for. Um, whereas 87% of students, educators, and administrators believe they're teaching the proper skills to their students, and the students think they're learning the skills that employers want. So there's a total disconnection between what employers are looking for and what educators are delivering to students. And when you dig into that, you find that a lot of those skills are skills that reside within the realm of entrepreneurship education. Uh, for example, a lot of people think that problem solving is a skill that employers really value. And they do, but it's not like the most important skill that they value. But, you know, it, educators, administrators, oh, we got to get problem solvers out there. you got to really teach people how to solve problems. The, the employers we spoke with, and this really resonated with me as an employer, like solving problems isn't that hard. What's hard is, is finding problems, like identifying problems, framing problems in a way where they can actually be solved in a meaningful way. So they're actually more interested in finding problem finders as, a pro, as opposed to finding problem solvers. And I think that's really inherent in what entrepreneurship is all about is it's searching for identifying and finding problems that are meaningful within society that are painful problems, and then coming up with a solution built around that information. So I think that there's a lot in the literature that supports like an AS track where, you know, you're tracking toward the workforce per se, and maybe you start a business, but man, if you don't start a business, you're going to bring some really important skill sets into the workplace that give you a competitive advantage over other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the choir, right? Like <laughs> Um no, I mean, I'm always fascinated by this and I'm actually in like I know, don't know if I talked a little bit about it, but I'm in a program at Penn that I'm gra- graduating from where they talk about it's education entrepreneurship, but the whole thing is finding problems to solve, not solving the problems because right. the way I mean, the way technology has advanced society, like the, the S curves are going so rapidly that it doesn't matter if you're solving a problem in an industry that's already fading out, right? Like right. It's continuing to recognize the opportunities in the new industries. And so it's so fascinating to think about an entrepreneurship curriculum that's focused on that when you're right, I would agree that everyone's like, we need problem solvers, but right, it's so, it's so interesting to think about it from that.
0: Yeah. And
2: the, the cool. other, the other piece is, um, You know, unfortunately, in my opinion, within the K through 12 space today, there is such emphasis on um, convergent thinking, you know, where students are taught to find the right answer to a question um, and memorize what that answer is. So when they take a test, oh, that C is the right answer, A is the right answer, but in the real world of business and life, um, what we need are not convergent thinkers, but divergent thinkers, you know, people that can come up with new ways of uh, finding answers to common problems. And I think that that's unfortunately places a lot of young people at a disadvantage, because that just continues in college, the whole convergent approach toward education, you know, especially if you're in like STEM education, it's you you learn all of these important technical skills, which are very important and in demand today, but you're not learning to think in a divergent way and you're not learning those other skills. So that's where um, the in-lab at HCC comes in, this uh, other center, we're launching that this fall. Um, So the in-lab at HCC is designed to be an interdisciplinary institute. So we're gonna pull in students across the college and across academic disciplines um, to begin to work with different students on solving problems together. And um, we've modeled it after the D school at Stanford university, which I'm a huge fan of. And I've been there a number of times. If you've never been there, you got to get your butt out there. It's great. Um, They're doing amazing stuff out there, but uh, we're doing like a watered down version of it where we're going to develop a training program for faculty. So rather than calling people entrepreneurs and residents, we're calling them, innovators in residence. So IIRs instead of EIRs. I and a faculty will apply uh, into this program and they'll go through like a five or six month training program that will teach them about effectuation, design thinking, business modeling, and a whole host of other things to develop that entrepreneurial mindset, whether they're a science teacher, a math teacher, an English professor, whatever it might be. And then they'll get deployed back to their respective silos, you know, that they live in. Um, In our case, we have five campuses, so uh, they'll go back to their respective campuses. And our hope is that when a science student goes up to an IIR and says, you know, I've thought of like maybe a way of commercializing something or some new invention, instead of the educator saying, oh, that's really good, you know, good luck with that they'll say, oh my God, you know, you need to get into the in lab and we've got all these resources to help you really um, have that idea come to life. Um, and that will hopefully begin to bridge some of the STEM to workforce gap that exists today. So we're really excited about that. Um, and that is something that we'll launch in the fall. We have a design thinking course that's part of our entrepreneurship class. Uh, we launched that in the spring. And it was really interesting to see the type of students that enrolled in that. We had uh, four students in our engineering program. We had uh, two psychology students. Uh, We had three students in our dance program, which is at a different campus. We had a student that's studying biology in there, and of course, business students. But it made for like this amazing mashup of students uh, thinking about and approaching problems from totally different vantage points. And that just accelerated innovation that much more.
0: Oh, I love that so much. You could probably see the steam coming out of my head. I'm not, I am, I'm not going to talk about my kid's school this time. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little, I will, but we, we just, we, in K through 12, by and large, that's a huge issue. And I'm so glad that you're addressing that, the silo issue and, and the piece where, like it's the, I choose, have you ever seen the video, I choose C? Yes,
2: I've seen that. Yes. <laughs> it,
0: we, it's just, we just had, I had a, a very personally bad experience this, this past school year with, I have, I have a divergent thinker mm. and he does not fit into a convergent box and it was right. very difficult. Um, yeah. But, but I'm so glad that that's happening. And I wish that's kind of my mission is to bring more of that to the K through 12 because, I mean, it's got, it's probably got to shock their system if they're coming from a traditional type of school to get to Hillsborough and be like, I mean, it's gotta be awesome, but what you if they had that pushed down a little you know, if they were doing that in high school, middle school, elementary school, if they were just getting even a taste of some of that, it, where they could go when they got to college level would be out of control. I mean, it would just, so it's, it's. Yeah, it's, and and the D school is amazing. I'm actually doing a, a training in a couple, of, well, in a week and a half um, for some kids in in Knoxville, and I'm going to use um, their wallets project. I don't know if you've seen uh, that. It's really
2: yeah, 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 yeah. Redesign the wallet.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's it's all about the it's all about empathy, and I'm yeah. not sure I'm going to frame it around wallet. I have kind of a different take on it, but um, it's about it's about finding a problem that is actually a real problem for somebody yeah. else and
1: yeah.
0: it, it'll be interesting to see how that turn. I'm going to do it with adults and with students. So it'll be interesting to see the, those two perspectives on it. But yeah, it's amazing. I want to come to Hillsboro. Can I, can I enroll? And
2: you can, you sure <laughs> is, there, is there a
0: distance <laughs> option?
2: <laughs> Not for the design thinking class, but uh, you can, we have some online classes for sure. You know, I just wanted to say that one of the key underpinnings to all of this, and it really stopped sometime in like fourth, fifth or sixth grade, is, um, you know, when you're nine years old, eight years old, and you draw something and you show it to your mom or dad or whoever, you know, the typical response is, oh, my God, that's beautiful. I'm going to bring that into my workplace and show it to my coworkers and blah, 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 blah. But then somewhere is like fourth, fifth, sixth grade in there when you show something to somebody, they're like, oh, you know, art's just not your thing, you know, you should really start to focus on, you know, science or math or something that's meaningful in the workplace that I just don't think you're going to have much of a career there. And that process can be so dehumanizing to a lot of young people. I mean, they do it, they adapt and they kind of get on this other train as Toy was kind of just mentioning with her child. Um, but it's a really unfortunate because the workplace is demanding so much more from young people today. And they're just coming in ill prepared for the most important thing of all, which isn't problem finding. It's simply giving something a go, willing to give something a go and willing to fail in doing so. Their s- students today are so reticent to try something because you know making a mistake is so demonized you know through most of their formal years of uh, K through 12 education that they don't want to take a chance. So what we do at the college, and this is in the chapter as well, um, we encourage uh, and challenge other institutions. To have events, have festivals, call them whatever you want. You can call them a failure festival if you want to. And what you do with these events is you recognize a students, you recognize staff, you recognize faculty, you recognize administrators that tried something and it didn't work. And what you say is look at what this person tried to do. They have done more to advance the cause of innovation at our college than all of you that just never do anything in this room. And I think we do a good job of recognizing the winners, the people that do good things and cool things. We give them recognition, but we are absolutely horrible at recognizing people that try and fail. And there's a lot of those people. And I think if we were to recognize them in the same light, There'd be so many more people willing to try things, and it would unleash this whole new world of innovation in higher education. But, I, you know, I, I can't solve that one for other schools. You know, I'm just trying to fight that fight here, and it's hard, you know. But we do it in our own way, and um, we're making a lot of progress on that front and starting to see some change.
1: My question is because we went over like a lot of really cool things that you're doing and like spurring this growth in entrepreneurship education. So if I was an educator listening today, like what advice, what parting advice would you have for them if they're interested in entrepreneurship? And it can be like overarching advice or it can be like a tangible resource. But what would you say to them?
2: Um, I would say there's two things you need to really focus on, you know, number one, you have to make every single thing you do student-focused. It's got to be all about the student. It can never be about you as the educator or the school as an institution. Because you're going to, when you start to go down the road of entrepreneurship education, you're going to run into a lot of barriers. And those barriers are much easier to knock down when everything you're doing is student-focused and students are able to tell Uh, Their stories about how you might have positively affected their lives. So you've got to be hyper focused on students If it's not about a student, I would discourage you from doing it Um, So make it about students is my suggestion number one The second suggestion I have which is I think equally important and we touch on this in our chapter is You have to find a colleague to champion this initiative with It's I mean, I go to the NACI conferences every year and some of their other conferences and a whole bunch of people are so excited to be at these conferences because they're finally around their their tribe. You know, they're around the group of people that share the passion that they have. But then they return to this world where they're alone, kind of floundering, fighting the fight, you know, and this and that. You've got to find a champion to work along with you. I've been really fortunate to have Beth Curley at HCC um, lead the way with me. And you know she's come up with so many really dynamic and innovative um, ideas and pieces to our puzzle. Um, and, and I can honestly say, and I think she would say the, the same thing if she were here, that having a team member helps in so many ways. It helps because you can push one another but it also helps because you can lift up one another when one's feeling really discouraged when something bad has happened or you know one of those bureaucratic barriers has popped up and we do that for one another all the time it's always funny to me that you know sometimes something that really is bothering her isn't really bothering me as much but it's like really weighing her down so i'm like oh man it's no big deal we're going to get past that one and then she does the same thing for me you know when I'm like, oh my gosh! You know, this is just too much to bear. And she's like, no, Andy, on and that whole thing. So you've got to have a colleague. Now, the colleague does not have to be internal to your your institution or your school. That's a really important thing. Note: um, We at HCC have an army of people that help to support our programming. Some are internal that help to support Beth and I, but then we have all these people in the community. Uh, entrepreneurs, government officials, people throughout the state of Florida, people like the two of you, NACI as an organization that could help to sort of support what it is you're doing. Um, so don't feel like if you don't, if you don't have a like-minded person internally, that you can't find that person in your community, um, but you have to have somebody, it's got to be somebody to fight the fight with you. So those are, I think the two suggestions I have is, student focus, number one, and find a champion to work alongside of.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it it makes me reflect on the success stories of the schools that are within our America's Entrepreneurial Schools program. And like, I just think about every single one of the really successful ones. It's been a partnership of change makers in that school that have made an effort. It's never been like a one kind of one-stop shop thing. Um, Yeah. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I love that. And that's I think that's something that anybody listening could really take and find those champions in their community. Speaking of finding a champion, how can they touch base with you if they are interested?
2: <laughs> they can't, because I don't like to help or collaborate with anybody. So
1: <laughs> Okay, cool. <laughs> Keep that in mind, everyone.
2: <laughs> it's all about me, okay? No, I'm kidding, of course. That was a joke. I'm very sarcastic and if you were ever in any of my classes, like the first few weeks, you'd be like, is he serious about that? Or, but then they get it. And it's like, great. We have a great time in the class. But anyways, you can reach me. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I would love that because I post all the time on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Prof Andy Gold. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. You can call me at any time. So I'll give you my phone number right now. It's area code 813 two five nine six zero six two you can email me um it's a gold three um for andy gold i guess i was the third gold at a gold at <laughs> gold three at hccfl.edu you can visit our uh, website for operations startup which is operationsstartup.com, which has a lot of information about our various programs both credit non-credit, co-curricular, and so forth. Um, And you can reach me, I don't know how else, maybe at a conference when I see you, but I would love to meet all of you. And really, you know, at this point in my life, I would just really like to help support people doing really cool things out there in any way that I can. And um, please don't ever hesitate to reach out to me.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This has been super cool. And mm-hmm. all of your stories have made it so much more impactful just to hear like your trajectory, how it's, how you've impacted the lives. So we're really excited. Thank you for joining. All right, us. And
2: we're excited to work with you guys. Like we're doing this really cool project, which you know a little bit about here in Tampa with these failing schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really excited to partner with you hopefully this year. and um, we've made a lot of headway there. Um, it's a community grassroots driven initiative. Um, we're doing an ed camp, um, I'm trying to think. I think it's going to be in early August. So if you guys want to come down and kind of see what we're doing, it might be cool. We're going to try to bring in uh, parents, teachers, to kind of mix it up a little bit, yeah, so parents yeah. and teachers can, can cross pollinate a little bit. Um, but we're going to make it all about like um, a social societal problems, and you know, doing presentations on that. So um, and how it affects education. So that that could be a really cool way for us to begin partnering
0: that I would be awesome. I, hope, I hope we can get down there. I, I don't need too many excuses to go to Tampa, but <laughs> yeah, I don't I enjoy warm weather or beaches. It's
2: just not. Really nice. <laughs> well, you're always welcome. And I really appreciate you guys um, reaching out to Beth and I. I'm sorry, Beth couldn't be here. She's gallivanting around Europe right now. I think <laughs> she's in France or something like that. So she, you know, she's having a well-deserved vacation, but Next time you'll have to have her on, you know, she's got her own set of stories and things to share with you, but it's a really good team we have here at HCC. So thanks for thinking of us.
1: Yeah. No, thank you. We'll definitely follow up with them.